0: Well, it's wonderful to join you again, and I pray that this is a blessing to you. This is Sunday school. I know it's Sunday night, a little bit weird, but uh, content's the same. And I thought during the month of July we might take a look at a certain passage in here that has to do with government and that kind of thing. We're in an election year. There's a lot of controversy with things that are going on. It's also the celebration of the founding of our nation, and uh, we do thank God for our country, and we thank God for the freedoms that we have. And again, one of the things that I think is so important is for people to understand that the Constitution does not grant us rights, but our founding documents tell us that God has given us these rights that are called unalienable. In other words, you can't separate them from any human, any time, anywhere, because we're made in the image of God. And it's our government that recognizes and preserves God-given rights. So always remember that. It always goes back to God. The other thing that, uh, as we read this, we're going to be looking in uh, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8. If you want to go ahead and uh, turn there and kind of find it, we'll be looking uh well today for reading we'll be referencing some other verses to get some background and stuff but we'll be reading from 10 to 18 and uh, this is not a particularly happy time in the nation of israel or in their history but then again as i think about reading through the old testament how much of it really is happy times i mean we think about their slavery in Egypt and we think about the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We uh, think about the uh, times when they would fall into idolatry and the prophets, so many of them, of the major prophets, especially warning the people about the impending judgment and the doom that was coming because of their sin. Uh, When you move into the minor prophets after they came back into the land, What were they doing then? The book of Malachi comes to mind that uh, they kind of played around with rebuilding the temple. They got their houses built, but they sort of played around with building the temple. Worship became burdensome, and they doubted the love of God, that type of thing. And so there's an awful lot in the Bible, especially when you start thinking about the people in the Bible. And you think about how Moses, he's the hero of heroes in the Old Testament, And yet you look at his flaws. He even was the one that wrote those things down. And you think about people, heroes like David. You think about people like Solomon. And all of their flaws are exposed. And the good, the bad, and the ugly was in there. Isn't that interesting that the Bible doesn't sanitize the history of the people of God? It doesn't make them all into saints and heroes and wonderful people who never ever mess up. It really does show their flaws. The Apostle Paul said in the book of 1 Corinthians that these things, meaning the Old Testament, they're written as examples for us. In fact, I think he uses the word admonition in some translations. And admonition means a warning. It is a warning for us not to follow the same patterns and the same sins that they followed. Well, we're not very smart. We don't tend to pay attention to those kind of things. And we say that we would never do anything like that. Well, I think you're going to see today that not only can we, but we actually have in our country done much the same thing that ancient Israel did in this particular story. Now, the setting of this story, it is the end of the period of the Judges. The Judges, that was a period where it says in the very last verse, uh, you're familiar with, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But the first part of the verse says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Well, how did Israel get to where they had a king? Because you and I know that uh, there were several kings of Israel. And later, when the kingdom split, Israel and Judah. So how did we get from the time of the Judges? Well, at the very end of the period of Judges, a prophet came up, and his name was Samuel. And he did function uh, in the same role as the Judges. And as he would rule over the people, advise the people, he was doing that in the power and in the strength and in his walk with God. And so this was the time when God was ruling and reigning, and God was recognized as the true king of Israel. Well, people got tired of that. And as Samuel was growing old, you can imagine with anyone, maybe his judgment was a little bit impaired. Maybe his strength and vitality wasn't quite there. Maybe he wasn't as quick as he used to be, as forceful as he used to be. Maybe he wasn't as influential as he used to be. And people, as we tend to do, they started thinking, you know, Samuel's going to be gone one of these days. And here was the problem Samuel's sons were not walking in the ways of Samuel Samuel had trouble with his kids too A lot of God's people did And so as this was happening The elders of Israel started thinking What are we going to do when Samuel's no longer around We don't want his rotten kids judging over us So you know what? We need a king Everybody else has a king after all King would be the way to go And so that's the context of what we are looking at. Samuel is distressed by this. And so let's begin reading in verse 10 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. And to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to blow the uh, to plow, pardon me, plow the ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, putting him to work, and the uh, equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best, notice that word, the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain, taxes, and your vineyards and give it to his officers, cronyism you might say, and to his servants And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. You know what that means, don't you? And maybe they wouldn't actually call them slaves but they had to live like slaves because everything was under the command and supervision and at the pleasure of the king no matter who you are. So... De facto slavery, we would say. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, that's interesting. The people of Israel had this pattern as we look over hundreds and hundreds of years crying out for things we got to have this 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 and finally the Lord would say okay have at it but don't blame me don't blame me for the consequences and that happened you remember with the quail oh you want quail I'll give you quail and it'll be coming out of your noses and that type of thing they constantly complain and what the Lord did and the Lord himself was never quite good enough was he and I think I see some parallels in the way that we live in the way that our culture is in the way that even God's people today kind of act it's as though with everything God has given us well it's not really quite enough and it's not really good enough and why can't we have everything that ungodly people have seems to be a problem for us. But that's also something that was a question that was raised in the Psalms. Why do the heathen prosper? And those type of things. So uh, I think it's part of our human condition. I think it's a part of our fallen nature. I think it's a remnant of our depravity. That even as redeemed people who know the Lord. We, we still kind of want a little bit more than what he has provided. And what he gives us. Now all you have to do is. Watch your children or your grandchildren, especially when they're little, when they are unfiltered. And when they uh, don't know any better and when they're not really afraid of being disciplined because they don't really understand uh, what's going on. you, You watch them and you realize that they're never really happy with what they have. They always want something else. Especially there can be a toy that they don't even play with until someone else starts playing with it. Or they see one of their friends comes over and they see a toy that that friend has and all of a sudden they want it. I don't think we ever really grow out of that. We learn how to filter it. We learn how to control it maybe. But there are cravings and things that we have in our own heart and we're really not thankful. And the Bible even says that in the latter days not only will people be unholy but they will be unthankful. And so um, this is kind of what's going on here. The Lord has been ruling over them, reigning over them in a theocracy. And it just wasn't quite good enough. And the God that had brought them out of slavery in Egypt, the God that had seen them through the corruption of the time of judges and of the priest Eli and graciously given them a godly man like Samuel, well, they looked and they said his time is running out. I'm not sure God's going to be able to do that again. Have you ever felt like God was out of control? Well, I know we don't ever say that, but have you kind of felt that sometimes? Have you ever felt as though the God who has worked miracles in your past that, well, maybe he doesn't have a miracle for you today. The God that provided for you in the past, well, maybe you've kind of run out of grace and run out of His mercy, and He just might not provide this time. And I know He's done it before, but how do we know He'll do it again? And what if He gets tired of messing with us? And what if He turns His back? What if He doesn't? Well, that's what Israel was doing in spite of the covenants that God had made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, in spite of all that they knew, in spite of the promises and the blessings in the law of God that Moses had preserved for them, they were thinking here at the end of Samuel's life, well, how long can a good thing last? We're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Surely there's something bad that's going to happen now. And so as they began to talk, As they begin to plan, as they begin to think about things, the only solution seemed to be, we need a king. If we only had a king, if the king could be there for us, then all of our problems would be over. I mean, after all, it's working for the other nations. And other nations are conquering and expanding their land and building wealth and building empires. Uh, We're being left out. We're not getting our piece of the pie. And so we need a king. And so this king, they thought, would be somebody that instead of having an invisible person reigning over them, they would have someone that they could see. They would have someone that they could go to. You know, there are times when you pray to the Lord and you're not really sure what his answer is going to be. Now, we know he always hears. And there are sometimes he says yes, and we're thankful for those times. Sometimes he says no, and we really ought to be thankful for that because an all-wise God Knows when to say no and he knows what's best. And then other times, frustratingly, he says, wait, not now, later. And we don't really like that. Well, when you go to a physical king, you know exactly what he's thinking. You can see the look on his face. You can see whether he smiles. You can see whether he frowns. You can see whether he's angry. You can tell what's going on. If you have a physical king, it also means that when you go out into battle, you don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder, are we doing the right thing in the right way? Are we going to win the battle? You've got a king. And you can follow that king and boy, he looks good on horseback. And uh, you know as he gives commands and as he inspires you and you go out there and you fight for the glory of your king. I mean, it's a, a wonderful, wonderful thing, isn't it? The banners and the pageantry as he leads you into battle. But you know, there's something else too. When you go out and you have a physical king and he's impressive on horseback. And his entourage and the banners and everything. You know what? The enemy sees that. And so your enemies, those other nations out there, can be impressed by your king as well. I mean, this is a win-win situation people are thinking about. So that's the context where Samuel gives them all of this news. Are you thinking about what the king is going to do he's going to take the best he's going to tax you he's going to draft your sons and your daughters into his service I mean this is all going to be about him kings don't live like regular people do they kings are going to eat when no one else does If there's a famine, your family may not eat, but the king is going to eat. When there's a drought, you may not have water, and your crops may be sparse, but the king is going to get what's coming to him, and everything is going to be well with the king and for the king. As long as that king has anything to say about it. And that's what Samuel is saying. You're going to be like his slaves because you can't go anywhere that the king won't let you go or do anything that the king won't let you do. And Samuel is saying, why do you want this? Why are you choosing this for yourselves? And Basically, basically the Lord says, Samuel, let them have it. Let them have it and let them have what they want. And um, Samuel anticipates... That uh, they would be just like we are. We go our own way. Do our own thing. Press for what we want. Disobey what God says. Uh, We have disdain for his wisdom. And we walk in the way that seems right to us. Then when we get in trouble what do we do? Oh God get me out of this. Oh God where are you? Oh God why is this happening to me? And Samuel is basically telling them. When you reap the results of all of this. That's not going to be good for you because the Lord is going to let you reap what you sow. Well, where did all this happen? What are the roots of this dark period? And uh, the first king, of course, that comes to be the monarch over Israel is King Saul. Most of you know enough about that to know it's not a good chapter in Israel's history. And um, how did they get there? Well, before we really kind of tear apart the verses that we have read, let's just think about what happened on all of this and and what brought them to this point and and how this was going uh, downhill for them. Because I think you'll see this same thing in our own country as well. Something to pray about. First of all, it began with a rejection of God. Back up to verse 7. When Samuel is real concerned and burdened about all of this, he goes to the Lord. Listen in verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Now listen, here's the key. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Isn't that interesting? God says, Samuel, don't take it personal. It's not you they've rejected, but it's actually you me that they've rejected and so this rejection of God has far-reaching consequences and the influence of this is going to be felt for generations isn't it and uh, think about when Samuel the man of God when his word as he represents God is rejected he takes it personally I understand that and anybody who preaches the Word of God understands that because it seems like when people don't respond, they're rejecting you. It's actually not the case, is it? For those of you who have taught Sunday school, and I would go so far even for those of you who have raised children. There are things you teach them and values you try to instill in them and they may or, not, may, or may not take them up. And it feels like a rejection of you. And God would say to us, slow down. If you are faithful in proclaiming the truth, then it's really not you who uh, is being rejected, just like Samuel. It's really the Lord. This is far more serious than I kind of disagree with Samuel and Samuel says t- time is coming to an end and all of that kind of thing. The desire for a physical king was a rejection of God. And so um, what is happening here, there's kind of an idolatry that is going on. The people of this era might dispute that. But um, there's a pride. We know better than God knows. We know better than the prophet knows. We've got a better way. And uh, there's a way of course that seems right to man. We know what that happens. And pride. Well we all know what it says. It goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall and they thought that in their human wisdom they could assess things better than God could better than Samuel could and so uh, he's getting old his sons are no good and uh, we've got to take matters into our own hands we've got to do something and again there's a way which seems right to man but it's in Um, is the way of death and that's what Samuel is desperately trying to get them to see this is not about really the king this is about their relationship with God and so many times we tend to think the problems in our nation could be solved by a vote now I'm all for voting right and I'm all for the people of God being good stewards of the freedom that we have but let's understand The basic problem that we have is a problem of the heart, and it's a problem of sin. And we are seeing the results of that in our nation now because a long time ago, we made a choice, and I know you and I didn't, we probably weren't alive, or if we were, we were little kids, but America made a choice to disavow God and yet, at the same time, give a little bit of lip service to him every once in a while. But basically, we'll do what we want to do. Our wisdom is better than the wisdom of God. And we're reaping the consequences of it now. Secondly, you'll notice what happened. After God is rejected, well, then you have to reject his word. I mean, if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, then why would you believe in the Bible? And so they began to speak against and act against the word of the lord rejecting god's word so samuel told them all the words of the lord right and what did they do in verse 19 it says nevertheless the people refused to obey the voice of samuel and they said no but we will have a king over us Boy, what a Difference, that is, when you get to verse 10 and Samuel's giving them the word of the Lord in verse 19, they actually say no. And to say no to Samuel, who is giving them the word of the Lord, is to say no to God. That's a dangerous, dangerous position to be in because the authority of God and the authority of Scripture are one and the same. And you cannot have a high view of God and a low view of his word. Psalm 138, verse 2. I wish more people would grasp this verse. It says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Listen to this. For you have magnified your word above all your name. You know, I see people that say, oh, we love to worship, and they raise their hands, and they sing, and they cry, and they feel so good, and then they walk out of the doors of the church and violate the word of God. But, oh, they love God. I sometimes go and meet with families to plan or preach a funeral. Tell me about your grandma or your grandpa, your mom or your dad, your brother, your sister, your mate. Tell me about them. And I hear all about how, oh, they love little flowers and they love to grow things. And they love to fish and they love to do all of these things like that. And then you ask them uh, something about their spiritual life or what was their favorite Bible verse. And they have to scratch their heads. They have no idea. And then they say something like this, well... You know, they never went to church and they, you know, did this and they did this and did this. That are all kind of questionable and sinful. And then they say, but I know in my heart that they loved God. Now listen to me. You cannot be a lover of God and not love His word. Because He told us that He's magnified His word above His name. I watch some of these idiots on TV. And uh, they get up there and they violate the word of God. And they do it in the name of Jesus. Now think about that. If he has magnified his word above his name, it means that we don't use the name of Jesus In violation of his word, because using the name of Jesus, for example, when you pray, I pray this in Jesus' name, it means that you are saying, I pray this because I believe this lines up with the will of God. How in the world do I know the will of God? Is saying in the name of Jesus something that makes God do what he doesn't want to do? No, It means that we are believing that what we are praying lines up with his word so that Jesus could sign off on it. Think about that the next time you pray. Thirdly, notice that the roots of the bad government in Israel came down to uh, this. They wanted this king to go before them and they wanted them to fight their battles. Look down at verse 20. That we also may be like all the nations. You know what the nations are, especially in the Old Testament? They're the ungodly, the pagans, the uncircumcised, pig-eating, God-defying, Jehovah-hating pagans. You know what Israel, the people of God, you know what they're saying? These people that are chosen by Him, have been liberated by Him, the custodians of the law of God, all of that kind of stuff, they're saying... Hey, look at those people over there. We'd rather be like them. It seems to work for them. So here's point number three. Pagans become the pattern. Not Scripture. Not God. Not those who walk with God. Not those who are holy. Not those who are filled with the Spirit of God. Oh, we don't want anything like that. We want to be like the cool kids. We want to be somebody who is recognized as and loved, and feared, and uh, uh, admired by the rest of the world. We want to be like them. You know, uh, sometimes little kids can be like that. Little Johnny has a, a, a red wagon. I want a red wagon. And uh, she has this kind of a, of a doll. I want that kind of a doll, or, or whatever, right? That's what Israel was doing. They have it. Why can't we have it? And pagans became the pattern. And we find ourselves today, even Christian people, we're looking at the world and saying, how can we do that? How can we be like that? And churches are trying to imitate Hollywood. And Christian people are trying to find out how they can be like the world and fit in and not be different and not stick out. Well, your values make you stick out. In this world especially. And the presence of the Spirit of God in your life is going to make you different. You're ruled by a different person and you have a different power. Don't try to be like them. They're headed toward hell. We want a king to be like the other nations that our king may judge over us and go before us. And fight our battles. Being separate and different. That was uncomfortable. And it also seemed inferior. Basically what they're saying is we have a better idea than God. And the better idea that we have came from people who were ruled over by the devil. That's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Give us something and someone we can see. And give us something that we can look at and uh, like and understand instead of walking by faith. And that brings us then to number four. And they made a superficial choice. When it came down to who they wanted to be their king, they didn't look at character. They didn't look at godliness. They didn't look at holiness. They didn't look at anything like that at all. In fact, in uh, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says there was a man of Benjamin, that's the tribe, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of... Bekorath, the son of uh, Ephiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. Okay, and that's all just talking about the family tree. Verse 2. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. Notice how he's described. A choice and handsome son. Well, then it goes on. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people you know what in our day we might say well he looks good on tv he's got a good stage presence he's somebody that when he's with other world leaders i mean he's going to be tall and strong and he's good looking and all of that you know they uh, say that back in 1960 the big reason that john f kennedy beat richard nixon and boy that was just barely it had to do with how they looked on TV. And Kennedy looked young and he knew how to kind of work the cameras. He was charismatic. And Nixon looked older and kind of dark and he didn't appeal to the camera quite as well. One of the things they say about Ronald Reagan, the great communicator, being an actor, he knew how to uh, you know, present himself on television and the media. Well, that would have been Saul. And that would have been the basis for their choice. And notice how superficial it was. And boy, so many times today we do the same thing. We choose leaders based on how they look. We choose leaders on how well they present themselves. We choose leaders on what they would promise to give us rather than on their character or upon their convictions or anything like that. So not much has changed. So when you look around at the world we're living in, You say, well, is God surprised by all of this? Well, no, He's really not. Because even though the people would say, well, we chose Saul, Romans chapter 13 tells us something that we always ought to remember, whether we like our leaders or not. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Well, easy for Paul to say. Oh, really? Under the Roman Empire? Under somebody like Nero? You see, the Bible tells us that even bad government is preferable to anarchy, like we've been seeing on the streets lately. And respect is the mark of true believers. The Bible tells us that we are to love our neighbor, and that includes cops... That includes people that are against us, rioters and looters even. We're to love them. And it also would include our presidents and people in Congress and governors and mayors, right? They're our neighbors as well. And we are to love them. Peter actually commands it. And he was under Nero when he wrote this. He says in 1 Peter 2, verse 17, Honor all people. Some of you need to remember that when you write your Facebook post. Love the brotherhood, that's the church. Fear God, and look at this, honor the king. Paul even commanded us that we're to pray for them in First Timothy 2. Therefore, I exert, uh, exert, exhort that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then he delineates, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and perseverance. Boy, doesn't that sound good right now? A quiet and peaceable life. Why aren't we having that? Paul would say, look at your prayer life. Look at your attitude toward your leaders. And remember that your attitude toward your leaders and your government reflects your attitude toward God. Hey, folks, let's not make the same mistakes that Israel did. May God help us. May God bless our nation through us as the people of God, as we are salt and light, and as we have understanding of the times. We just explained it to you. We just showed you. It fits hand and glove to the times in which we are living. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the insight that we can gain through your holy and inerrant word. Thank you for your time, and may the Lord bless you, and we pray that it enriches your life.